I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The current construct, the current denominator in which we're getting the funds to support connectivity in America, that is shrinking. It is not a fair burden for those who are landline-only customers. This week on Radio Motherboard, we have Sam Gustin in the office, and we're going to talk about the future of the FCC, net neutrality, broadband access, and stuff like that. We have Mignon Clyburn, who is the last Democratic commissioner at the FCC. Sam, tell us a little bit about Commissioner Clyburn. Well, Commissioner Clyburn, as you said, Jason, is the last or the sole remaining Democrat on the Federal Communications Commission. With the election and inauguration of President Trump, the majority at the FCC has switched over to the Republicans. This is after eight years of Democratic control under President Obama. So the new FCC chairman is Ajit Pai, a former Verizon lawyer and longtime congressional staffer and FCC staffer who was in the minority at the commission for several years. He is now the chairman of the FCC. The FCC is a five-member agency that has regulatory oversight of the nation's airwaves, the biggest phone companies, the cable companies, satellite companies, broadband infrastructure. And so it's a really important agency that has regulatory oversight over one-sixth of the economy. What's happening at the FCC now is that Chairman Pai has a very different view of the FCC's role than former Chairman Tom Wheeler. Yeah, he's pretty much the opposite on basically everything, right? So during the three years that Chairman Wheeler was running the agency, he took a number of very aggressive initiatives that would benefit consumers. For example, the open internet order, which protects net neutrality, the idea that all content on the internet should be equally accessible to consumers. As part of the open internet order, that laid the legal foundation for very robust broadband privacy rules that protect consumer privacy online. Chairman Pai has made no secret of his distaste for the legal basis underpinning the open internet order, as well as the FCC's privacy rules. And in general, the FCC under Chairman Pai, which has just been going on for a couple months now, has a much narrower, more circumscribed view of the role of the FCC. One way to think about this is that under Chairman Wheeler, the vision of the mission of the FCC was much broader, more aggressive, especially when it came to consumer protection. Consistent with sort of the Republican, small government, laissez-faire ideology, Chairman Pai has been working to sort of scale down the agency's ambitions. 
So he's already scrapped one of the key privacy provisions. He's scrapped one of the open internet provisions that has to do with transparency for small, smaller and medium-sized broadband providers, and focused on a narrower set of issues. And this is disappointing for a lot of consumer advocates who really appreciated the fact that former Chairman Wheeler took like I said, a more expansive and aggressive view when it came to consumer protection. Wheeler really made a, a 180 on things like that after the net neutrality comment campaigns, if I remember correctly. Like, he wasn't always this sort of staunch defender of net neutrality and of consumers' rights. Well, that's, that's actually a really good point because, first of all, it's important to remember that Sharon Wheeler, for decades, was the chief lobbyist for both the cable industry and the wireless industries. So when he came in, a lot of consumer advocates were like, oh, here we go. You know, here's an industry lobbyist who's going to come in. He's going to do the bidding of the industry. But over his three years, I think a lot of consumer advocates were very pleasantly surprised because he really stood up to the industry. Now, to your point, when it came to the open internet order and net neutrality, initially, it seemed like he wanted to sort of thread the needle with this sort of middle path that was not as aggressive as I think a lot of consumer advocates wanted when it came to protecting the open internet. And basically what happened is there was this incredible firestorm of Mm. grassroots reaction and mobilization where four million people filed comments with the FCC, the overwhelming majority of them, saying, look, FCC, look, you guys, we need the strongest, most robust open internet protections possible because the internet is so essential to the economy, to civic empowerment, to free speech, to innovation, startups, etc. And so I think it really was this sort of outcry, this grassroots outcry from consumers that and I think he would tell you that that helped push him to implement the strongest possible net neutrality rules, which, by the way, are now at risk under current Chairman Pai. Right. Yeah. So Wheeler also tried to empower local communities to build their own broadband infrastructure to basically supersede state laws that prevented local communities from building infrastructure. And that was shot down by an appeals court eventually. But I think under Pai, there's no chance of that happening. That's a very anti-Republican sort of thing. So that's sort of out the window, I would say. What other sorts of things should people be worried about changing under Pi? Well, I think it, I think it is worth – you make a good point, and it's worth sort of discussing that for, for a moment. The fact of the matter is, as you and I have both written about for many years now, in over 20 states across the country, there are state laws that were often pushed at the behest of Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon lobbyists at the statehouse level – that prohibit towns and communities from establishing their own municipal or community broadband networks. And so basically, it was the political power of the incumbent broadband giants essentially preventing cities, towns, municipalities from starting their own broadband networks. You've written a lot about and spent a lot of time in Chattanooga. Chattanooga is a great example of a municipality that said, look, our citizens are not being served by these incumbent companies. So we're going to build our own networks. And Chattanooga and another town in North Carolina petitioned the FCC, preempt state laws that throw up barriers to municipalities, cities and towns from creating their own networks. And Chairman Wheeler said, yes, we're going to do that because we believe in the idea of community and municipal broadband. So the FCC started a process to 
preempt those restrictive state laws. Now, not surprisingly, the incumbent broadband providers, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and their allies, both in Congress and in state houses, overwhelmingly Republican, said, no, this is a state's rights issue. You know, we can't have these unelected bureaucrats in Washington coming in and superseding, you know, state laws. This is, you know, it's a violation of constitutional principles, which, of course, dovetails with a frequently oft-heard Republican talking point about states' rights. So they filed a suit against the FCC. And unfortunately for the FCC, the Sixth Circuit last summer struck down the FCC's authority on constitutional grounds. As you point out, given that ruling, it's unlikely that the FCC really has the power to do anything moving forward. But the point I want to make, this is sort of a long windup, is that at least under Chairman Wheeler, there was an appetite and an interest and a motivation at the FCC to encourage community and municipal broadband networks. Now that's gone. Under Chairman Pai, you can forget about having that sort of institutional support at the FCC for community and municipal broadband networks. Right. So what what other things? I, net neutrality is a big one, but how does Pi differ from Wheeler on some of these other issues like consumer privacy or? Well, privacy is a big one. I mean, last year under Chairman Wheeler, the FCC approved really robust broadband privacy protections, which really boil down to this. If your broadband company, your internet service provider like Comcast, AT&T, or Verizon wants to use, sell, or share what they call sensitive personal information, which is stuff like medical information, bank account information, credit card information, social security information, information about children, and importantly, your browsing history, your mobile app usage then they need to ask you and the consumer has to give their opt-in consent. Now, this is really, really important because if you think about it, you connect to the internet using Comcast or Time Warner Cable, now Spectrum or AT&T and Verizon. Everything you do online, they have access to. Every site you go to, your keystrokes, apps you use, sites you visit, et cetera, et cetera. They, they have a log of all of that. This is very, very valuable information to them because they can use this information on your your habits, your browsing preferences, etc., to zero in and target very, very narrow advertising at you. So, like for example, Jason, if I don't know, do you have Verizon or AT and T? Oh yeah, I have Verizon. So, so you have Verizon for your cell phone. Yeah. So if you're, where, what state are you from? Maryland. So Maryland, right? So if, I don't know if Maryland's in the NCAA tournament, but if you're they like... They were. They were. They're not anymore. <laughs> all right. But if you, but the thing is that if AT&T or Verizon sees that you're checking ESPN to like see what's going on with the Terps 25 times a day, then their idea is all of a sudden you'll start seeing like, you know... Season tickets. Like season and, tickets yeah. are like Terps apparel, you know. But, I mean, that's kind of an innocuous example with sports. But you can think about some other sites, you know, that you might visit where they're able to target you. So the, basically the idea is all this the privacy rules say is that when it comes to sensitive personal information, for example, which bank, if you're communicating with your doctor, if you're checking out medical websites for, you know, that rash on your foot or something right, like that, right, right, you know, right. I mean, you can, if you do a thought experiment, you, you know, you can get yeah, sort of... Yeah, it gets ex- scarier the deeper you think about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right. So basically the, the principle is just that your broadband provider needs to ask for your consent, your opt-in consent, if they're going to use, share, or sell that data. And the sell part is really, really important because if they have that data, it's not just them using it. 
There are all kinds of like third-party advertisers and analytics companies that want that data. This is very valuable data. So if AT&T has all that data about you, then they can say to some third-party advertiser or analytics company, sure, okay, you pay us and we'll give you Jason's browsing history. Let's get to the interview with Commissioner Clyburn. She's sort of the last remaining one from the Obama administration, the last remaining Democrat. And so she's the one fighting for a lot of these protections that Wheeler implemented and the previous FCC implemented. That's exactly right. So the FCC is a five-member agency. By tradition, the incoming president has the ability and the right to choose a new chairman, and the previous chairman steps down. So Chairman Wheeler stepped down on January 20th, Inauguration Day. The other Democrat, the fifth member of the agency, former Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel, her term expired, and the Senate refused to reconfirm her because of a political fight, just being obstinate. And then just a, a couple of weeks ago, President Trump withdrew her renomination. So you have a situation now where this five-member agency only has three members on it. Two of them are Republicans, Chairman Ajit Pai and his Republican colleague, Mike O'Reilly, and FCC Commissioner Minyan Clyburn, who, as you say, is the sole remaining Democrat on what should be a five-member commission. It's unclear when the agency will be will get up to full strength again. There has to be a, huge, a whole process where the president nominates candidates and they confirmed by the Senate. I mean, this could take a year. All right, let's talk to her. Welcome to Radio Motherboard. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Why don't we start talking about something that a number of people have been speaking about, and that is the public interest mandate at the Federal Communications Commission. What is the public interest mandate at the FCC, and why is it so essential to the agency's mission? Well, it ensures, and it is a charge that we have to keep, that ask a question before we make any fundamental decision, before we issue any order, is this in the public interest? Will this improve and enhance the ideals and purposes, oftentimes the media ecosystem, the technology ecosystem, whether or not the decisions we make that have a substantial impact on the lives in terms of communication and information technology, will this decision, will our policies enhance and really focus on and improve what the public has come to expect when it comes to this communications ecosystem. You know, it's interesting. The FCC is kind of an esoteric agency. It doesn't appear in the news perhaps as much as other big federal agencies like justice and defense, etc. But maybe you can talk about why the FCC is so important in 2017 for consumers. I often joke that the FCC is one of the most important agencies people rarely hear about unless there's some type of wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl or someone says something, um, you know, in in the uh, media space. But the FCC, in essence, has some type of responsibility over one-sixth of our nation's economy. When you think about communications, when you think about media, when you think about you know, technology, when you think about transmitting a signal, very few things you can do without that fundamental underpinning when it comes to communications and technology. So the FCC is extremely significant in helping to enhance 
and shape the way we communicate and the way we perceive each other. Right. Obviously, broadband issues and internet access issues have been so important at the FCC in recent years. I want to sort of ask you a philosophical question. Do you believe that internet access is a luxury, sort of like cable, or more of a necessity for people in 2017? I have said for a number of years that the internet, that broadband availability, that broadband is, to me, the infrastructure of today. When you think about roads and bridges, when you think about clean, portable water, when you think about the rest of your utilities like electric and gas, no one questions, particularly on the utility side, whether or not there are necessities. If you are exposed to elements too long, we know the consequences of that. If you go without clean water for too long, you know what the consequences would be for that. But if you are unable to have access across the most empowering, liberating, and open platform of our time, uh, meaning the internet, then you are increasingly, uh, you will increasingly be behind uh, the information eight ball, so to speak. And that will continue to widen in terms of that divide your access to critical services and information that others around the world are hungry for. So for me, Broadband connectivity is a necessity because I recognize that without it, people living in certain areas that have certain income will not have access to essential services because now it, they're one out of the four public assistance programs right now in the majority of our states. You cannot access, you cannot sign up for that program without signing on or having access to the Internet. Uh, you cannot just walk into a, a public building and sign up for certain services. You have to have access to the Internet. When you look at the number of jobs posting for particularly Fortune 100 companies, you cannot just walk into a corporate office. You find out about the job, you apply for the job you know, over the internet. When you're in a remote region where uh, the doctors may be few and the clinicians uh, may be fewer, you cannot get access uh, to those uh, critical clinical services without complete access, without connectivity. And so when you talk about every single aspect of your lives, of our lives in terms of critical services and just information about what's going on in your community. Not having access to the internet is very disabling. It's, it's, it's crippling, honestly, for anyone who needs to be in touch, who needs to know what's happening in their community and wants to improve their lives. Do you think that point has been made clear enough? Like during the 2016 election, we heard a lot about the death of manufacturing and coal jobs, but we didn't really hear about what might replace them. I've been to places like Chattanooga that have really fast internet, gigabit internet, and they seem to be sort of thriving, whereas a lot of the neighboring counties are not. Do you think that politicians need to make a bigger deal out of this? It seems like it's sort of a forgotten piece of the puzzle here. Well, well, I'll answer it this way. One of the things we've been hearing a lot of talk about is infrastructure and the investment. And that seems to be the one unifying factor uh, that everyone says, yes, we need that. But infrastructure includes technology. It includes communications. And if it does not, then we're really honestly are not looking at the possibilities uh, holistically. And 
And so one of the reasons I think we need to better define what infrastructure and what the needs of the communities really are. I don't think we're saying it enough, but every single day in every community that is so connected, that is making it a priority to ensure that their citizens have access. We have, as you just pointed out, seen endless opportunities being introduced and taken advantage of. And I believe from where I sit, Broadband connectivity is the panacea uh, for all types of opportunities. It is what needs to be at the beginning, middle, and end when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to investment, when it comes to opportunities. Because what we have seen all around the world and what we have seen in the smallest of towns that make this a priority is citizens being empowered. They are empowered. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, let's drill down on this infrastructure point because it's very, very crucial. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about potential new infrastructure spending. Do you favor a model whereby the government gives tax credits or tax breaks or tax incentives to the existing broadband companies to build out broadband infrastructure, or do you favor sort of a more pure federal government spending model for building out broadband infrastructure in underserved areas? I'll answer this through my current lens. We have a universal service program, a construct, which is a four-legged tool that the government is investing each and every day for the connectivity needs of our citizens. We are using, in some cases, auctions that the best bidder to provide services to communities that are without, that they get the ability to invest with an economic complement from the federal government to connect these communities. I believe that we should be as technology neutral as possible because what we are finding and what we know is sometimes the best and the quickest and the most efficient may or may not be the incumbent. And so I believe that government should identify its priorities. And to me, that includes connectivity and infrastructure by way of technology and communications, but that we should also try to look at the entire ecosystem and saying what partnerships should we establish? What federal, 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 state, state or, or, or public-private partnerships should we establish to ensure that every American has access to the most emboldening, creative, open, empowering platform of our, our lifetime, and that is broadband, that is access to the internet. So I don't think we should necessarily favor who might be the most visible. I think we should look at every community's needs and saying who is or what is the entity most favorably suited to advance our goals and priorities. Some places it might be the satellite. Some places it might be the incumbent. Other places it might be what they call WISP. 
And there might be technologies that we are not so aware of. So I am looking for encouragement economically and otherwise through tax credits or whatever it takes for those communities to be empowered with the tools that they need to be effective and to be prosperous in the 21st century. Okay, well, let me ask you this. The Universal Service Fund is funded by a surcharge on everyone's phone bill. Is that correct? It is. And more narrowly, it, it, um, let me finish, uh, let you finish a- answering that question. I mean, because I, the reason why I uh, said something at that point uh, is, is because the universal service construct right now is a bit more narrow. Yes, there is a surcharge, but it is really looking at the long distance charges that are supporting the entire uh, universal service construct. So um, I mentioned that because I've been talking a long time about the need for contributions reform, but maybe I'm getting a little bit too granular. Well, I guess my question is would you favor an increase in the universal service fund surcharge? I mean, basically, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. If there's a general consensus that we need more money to fund broadband infrastructure build out, especially in underserved areas, the question is, where are we going to get the money? Are we going to increase the universal service fund surcharge? Are we going to give tax credits to the big broadband companies, as I think Chairman Pai favors? Or maybe Congress should just appropriate $10 billion to help build out broadband in rural areas. Where are we going to get the money, Commissioner Clyburn? Well, one of the things that I have been talking about for a number of years is the need for contributions reform. As I just mentioned, the denominator which supports this entire program, this this eight-plus billion dollar uh, construct, is one that is basically a heavy burden on the grandmothers of the world. And the reason why I say the grandmothers of the world, because they're more likely to be the ones who have a landline phone, who will make the long-distance calls from those phones, and that is, in essence, what is supporting our universal service So be more specific. How does this reform work? How does this contribution The reform would look at all of the persons, all of the communications entities from where I sit, who are the cost causers, who are the beneficiaries in this. Because right now, again, just the legacy platform, those who are connected through a landline platform are the ones contributing to the program. I contend that all of us benefit, you know, all of the users in terms of, you know, broadband and other types of entities, they benefit from this construct, but they are not contributing to the system. So we have an ever-shrinking denominator, which would be those landline users, those people who make long-distance phones over those landlines, and that universe is supporting um, a um, the in, in our t- entire universal service construct. It is a prescription. To me, it's not a sustainable system. And so we need to really look at who is contributing and who needs to contribute. I'm not talking about a tax over the Internet. I've heard that being said. I'm saying who are the cost causers and who should be the contributors to this ever-empowering system that we have because the current construct, the current denominator in which we're getting the funds to support connectivity in America, that is shrinking. It is not a fair burden for those who are landline-only customers. I understand. Let's talk about net neutrality for a second, but I want to talk about it in the context of free speech. Now, I understand that before you joined the FCC years ago, you were on the South Carolina Public Service Commission for a while. But prior to that, you were actually a newspaper publisher and editor. Is that correct? Yes. 
for about 14 years, if I can do my personal math right, I had a weekly newspaper in Charleston, South Carolina. So I think most experts believe that net neutrality is important for economic growth and innovation and startups flourishing. But I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of net neutrality, which, of course, for our listeners is the idea that all content on the internet should be equally accessible to consumers. Maybe you could talk about the importance of net neutrality for free speech and political organizing, because I feel like that side of the net neutrality debate doesn't get enough attention. So an open, free, and robust platform is not only inspiring, it is liberating. To me, when I talk about the open internet, some people, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, they, they call it net neutrality. It is equalizing all access to information and traffic, assuming, you know, all the information and traffic that we're referencing is legal traffic. We do have to make that distinction in terms of what is permissible here. And you mentioned through my lens in which I've got my professional beginnings. If it were Mignon Clyburn of now, I don't think that I would distribute my publication through the traditional, the way in which I did, you know, 20, almost 30 years ago, because there are quicker, more efficient ways to deliver information and services to end users, to readers, to consumers. And so I look at these open platforms as ways to get information out the ways to get goods and services to individuals in a way that is non-discriminatory, that my internet service provider cannot give preference to a company or an entity or website that they have a business relationship with and slow down my traffic or to somehow dilute my website or the way in which I communicate, giving preferences to someone else. They cannot dictate to me what um, way, what platform, as long it is, as long as it does not harm the network. They cannot say what cell phone or what, what, what medium that I can use to access the internet if it's not harmful to the network, that I have the ability and freedom to do that. That the government, that um, a private industry cannot dictate my interactions, my relationship with others over this platform, that to me almost defines through a more narrow lens the freedoms and opportunities that we have in this great nation. Our very uh, founding principles of uh, freedom, of, of uh, the ability to express oneself, the responsibilities we have, yes, but the ability that we have to communicate. And to me, the internet, broadband, and connectivity is but a natural 21st century extension of that freedom and those opportunities that we have. So that's why I'm so passionate. Thank you. Just as a parenthetical, why we've got you, I can't resist asking this question. Why did you get into the news and journalism business? Because in my experience, because <laughs> in my experience, people don't get into it by accident. I mean, we certainly don't get into it for the money. So why did you right. get into it and what did you learn? So I got talked into it by a parental unit. I won't say which one. Um, but, um, hmm. you know, one of the things that he, which probably gives it away. Yeah, uh, was, uh, I think I know who you're talking about. Just, just for our audience, uh, Commissioner Clyburn's father, James Clyburn, it's a veteran uh, member of Congress. Yes, he is from South Carolina. Yeah. Um, he came home one day very frustrated about news coverage in a couple of papers and said, you know what? I am tired 
of complaining about what I think is unfair and unbalanced position and coverage about me and others who may have certain points of view. We were always taught in my home to complain less and do more. And so what he opted to do was to take his own personal money and invest in a publication that was around for about 16 years that attempted to tell the other stories that did not think it was insignificant for us to highlight that young African-American female who made an A or that family uh, who did some incredible things by way of contributions to the community is about uh, that news and information that will inform and enhance and empower individuals in a particular demographic that had been ignored. Mm -hmm. It it was not uncommon for the local high school in the Charleston area that is predominantly African-American to this day to call a news outlet or two or three and say, we've got an incredible program going on volunteerism, great graduation race, something not dealing with sports, and not to hear anything. To give you a quick example, someone made a call to a news outlet because they kept trying to get them them for positive things. They called the same news outlet a few months later and say, we've got a big fight at the school. The news, the cameras were right there within minutes. Ignored everything else that was going on. I, I don't want to encourage that type of behavior because it was not true. But they just wanted to test what the outlets would come running to. Right. I understand. You probably heard, uh, I know you heard, about 10 days ago, you were at the Senate Commerce Committee FCC oversight hearing, and your colleague, Chairman Ajit Pai, seemed to dodge this direct question from a couple senators who asked him point blank whether he agreed with President Trump's tweet that certain news organizations are the, quote, enemy of the people, which is an extremely inflammatory quote. He said he didn't want to wade into the larger sort of political issues, as he termed it. But I'm going to ask you straight up, very directly, do you agree with President Trump's recent tweet that news organizations are the enemy of the people? I believe in a fully functional democracy that a healthy, robust media landscape is much needed. I take pride in our nation's respect for its media, that it's a necessary check and balance on all of us, that you are our first informers when it comes to news and information about what's going on in our communities. And I would not have been a part, even though I was a small part of the media landscape, if I did not respect what the media stands for and what its sole purpose is in a fully functional democracy. Thank you. And final question. One of your signature issues over the last couple of years has been inmate calling reform. Can you tell me why the FCC has stopped defending the, I believe it's the in-state calling rate caps? Well, as you know, back in February, we had our day in court, particularly focusing on a stay that was issued that prevented the intrastates or internal inside each state calling a rate of reforms that we voted on, the majority of the previous commission voted on to go into effect. And so what the commission did, as you know, was to defend only parts of that. The interveners defended the rest of that. We will 
likely wait until late spring or early summer for the D.C. Circuit's court to make a decision. But I am hopeful. Here is what everybody agrees, that there is extreme market place failure when it comes to inmate calling services. You have seen and we have noted calls is not uncommon for 15 minute calls to cost the family twenty four dollars. This is obviously a broken system. And so it is up to the agency that has responsibility to ensure that there are just reasonable fair rates to enable that to happen. So I am hopeful for a positive verdict. If by chance it does not go the way in which I think it should, that we should act. The FCC has been unfortunately silent for far too long with a structure that is obviously broken. And I believe that the federal government, as well as government on the state and local level, should stop looking at things in silos, to stop ignoring the devastation that this has been having on families. And we should ensure that an inmate's debt to society is not paid again and again by those 2.7 million children and those countless numbers of grandmothers who are raising those children on an ever-shrinking budget because they cannot afford to keep in touch. Gotcha. Final question. You were in the FCC majority for many years. Now you're in the minority. What has changed for you personally? How does it feel to be on the other side of the coin? Well, I can say that um, it might not be as much fun as it was, um, to be uh, you know, honest with you, but my mission and my objectives are the same. I came here almost eight years ago to ensure that the voices that have not been traditionally heard um, will have um, a, a person representing uh, them. Those inmates who nobody's seems to care about that we spent 10 plus years ignoring those petitions, have a person with a seat at the table speaking for them. Those communities that do not have broadband, that had no prospects of having connectivity, they have a person at the table representing them. Those places in America where market forces are not working to their benefit need a voice. And that for me has not changed. I'm no longer in the majority. As I said, I'm not having quite as much uh, fun enabling opportunities, but I will forever, as long as I'm here, be a voice for those who deserve one. Commissioner Minyan Clyburn, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Motherboard. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Radio Motherboard. I'm Jason Kebler. I'm here with Sam Gustin. And you can check us out on iTunes, all podcast apps. And you should also check out Plus Plus Podcast, Motherboard's other new podcast, which tells narrative stories from the field. That's Plus Plus Podcast. We're edited this week by Tim Barnes, and we will be back with another episode next week. Mm-hmm.